Let's begin with a word of prayer, brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, thank you for these great truths that we have just sung, simple truths, but truths that we will sing forever. Hallelujah, what a savior. Who else, God, has a savior like our savior? Who else, God, has a savior that works for those who wait for him? Who else, God, has a savior who would take on himself through nails and shame and scoffing and being subjected to abuse by his very own creation just to save them? Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, today as we open up your word, I ask, God, that you would speak to our souls and our hearts, God, that we would see our Savior brilliantly, God, through the pages of your word, and that our hearts would be moved, God, to trust him, to trust him more and more each day or to put our faith in him and commit to him for the first time. Lord, there is no more important decision than this. Father, help us to be a people, God, who are passionate for the things of God, to live, God, for the eternal things and not just for the things of this world. So, Lord, would you open our eyes today as we look at your word. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, grab it, and you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, where we are going to be continuing on in our series in the book of 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, picking up where we've been working through this pastoral epistle, talking about our salvation and also how the church of God is to be a buttress or a pillar of the truth, representing the truth of God to a world that is in desperate need of truth. You know, brothers and sisters, the Christian life that we are called to live is ultimately in the Bible a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's a good life. Although there are bumps along the way and it can be difficult, the end of that life is sure, and it ends in the city of our king where we will live forever. But the every day of this life does not look like just easiness, good times, and ease right? All of us who have lived as Christians understand that there are many times we walk through the pit of despair or we walk through the valley of the shadow of death where times are just difficult and it becomes very difficult sometimes to see the Savior in those times. It's not like that song says, right? Life is just sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. That's just songs, See, a joyful life, a life of joy and peace does not necessarily mean that every day is easy, You know, Jesus himself said that talking about the Christian way, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are actually few. You know, every true Christian actually has to learn to walk on their knees because there is no way to enter the narrow gate or to walk that narrow way while you are standing in your pride against God. All true Christians must learn to walk on their knees. 
You know, it's a sad reality for us that not all who set out on the path to follow in the footsteps of Christ, who are professing Christians, will actually finish that race. Just like how not everyone who enters the Boston Marathon and gets a little number and an entry form and, 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 and runs will actually finish that marathon, it's the same thing for Christian, those who profess to follow Jesus Christ. Not all who stick on the jersey Christian will actually make it to the end. That's the overwhelming testimony of the Bible. You read actually in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains the phenomenon of what is going to happen to his church in a parable of four soils. Right? He begins by explaining that there are some who will come to places like these churches or outside where people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet they will leave disinterested. And the gospel will be snatched away as if a bird came down to eat the seed. There are others that Jesus explains who will come. Soil number two who initially hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, that's exactly what I need. And in great joy, they accept Jesus and they begin to follow him. But when they fall into that slough of despondency or the way looks too hard and they say, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And because they lack roots like plants that are shallowly planted, they fall away and walk from Christ. And then there's the third kind of soil that Jesus talks about. Those who profess Christ, who claim to be followers of Him, and yet it says the cares of this world, the thorns of this world, choke them out. Whether it's their hobbies, their interests, their careers, money, earthly cares, they prove to be unfruitful. And the only thing that their lives look like in terms of spiritual success is really just like barren, fruit, barren trees that give no one nourishment. And then Jesus says there's the fourth kind. It's the kind that's planted in good soil, true believers. And they don't grow up to be barren shrubs, but they grow up into beautiful trees, trees that have fruit that yields some 30, 60, or 100-fold return. And that when people look at these Christian trees and the fruitfulness of their lives, the spiritual fruitfulness of their lives, they look at these things and say, I want what you have. I want the abundant fruit that you offer. When I eat of it, what you have, it's tasty to my lips. I want to eat so that I can live and also be that kind of tree. See, the way that God wants us to live and to function as Christians is to be that kind of tree. A tree that serves other people around us and when people see us, they don't see barrenness, but they see life. And that's my hope for every single person. When I preach when I lead this church here at Westland alongside our other brothers in leadership, that's my earnest desire, that we be a church full of fruitful people. And yet, even while I do this, I am keenly aware of this parable in the back of my mind that not all who start off here are going to finish. You know, the longer that I live, the more I see Jesus' parable lived out in front of my eyes. Now, now personally, I have seen friends that I started off with in ministry, people who were key student leaders in ministry movements, friends who served with me as small group leaders, even leaders in ministry in the church, who today 
no longer follow Jesus Christ and in some cases are hostile towards him and even see it as their duty to free Christians from the deception of the church and this book that they call the Bible. It's painful, actually, to watch this. The longer that you walk in the Christian church, the more of this you will see. You know, the Apostle Paul spoke about it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, where he urged the Philippians, saying, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, what you see in just those two verses is the apostle's grieving heart as he looks at those who did not heed his instructions to imitate him as he imitated Christ and are now no longer in the faith and they walk as enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, true pastors like Paul are men of tears, They take no pleasure in watching people walk out of the church and though they plead with them, they urge them to come back. They tell them to repent of their sins. They labor over them in prayer. They walk. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, you know, I don't think it's all doom and gloom, brothers and sisters. You know, James tells us that if we see brothers who are wandering away from the truth, we are to bring them back. There is hope for those who wander away, but the grim reality as well is not all who make a profession of faith will make it to the end of the day. There will always be the four soils in this church, in the visible church, until the day Jesus Christ comes home, comes to take us home. You know, in Colossians 4.14, the Apostle Paul talks about his experience with a man named Demas. 4.14 explains that Demas, along with Luke, the beloved physician, sends greetings to the Colossian church. But later on, when you read about the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read this about it. Paul says, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You know, this is the Apostle Paul here, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, guy that all of us would want to sit in Bible study. Imagine if you had a church with Paul and you stuck his face up on the website and said, conference, Christian conference, Apostle Paul speaking on the Christian life. You would pack out that church in an instant. And yet even the Apostle Paul, in all his work and his labor, also saw people who walked away from Jesus Christ at the end of the day. Jesus had his Judas It's painful for us, brothers and sisters, not just to experience loss, but to experience the pain of betrayal as those we once called family break off those bonds and choose a different allegiance. This is exactly what God predicts. You know, our text says here, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart. Now, The Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, or the third person of the Trinity. So when the Spirit is speaking here, God is speaking. And the later times that he's talking about here, I think are synonymous with Paul's usage of this phrase, the last times in the pastoral epistles and in his other writings, basically referring to the period of time that is now. This last age called the age of the church. You know, after Jesus came and died and rose again, he promised that one day he would come back at the end of this era when all the 
souls that he wants to save are brought into his heavenly kingdom, the end will come when the gospel has been preached to the very ends of the earth. Only then will the age of the church end. But until that age ends, the Apostle Paul warns us that in these last times, there will be people who depart from the faith. You know, you see what makes the new covenant so unique and so amazing is that the work of the Holy Spirit, that came on prophets and judges like Samson and others, transitions into a period in which the Holy Spirit indwells the regular members of the covenant people of God, so that every single Christian, the very least among us, has the Holy Spirit living in us to do the work of ministry, to guide us into all truth, and also to lead God's people corporately to doing things which advance the gospel message around the world, to accomplish His purposes. So the Holy Spirit is at work now in the church age, and the Holy Spirit here talks. Now, you can see what the Holy Spirit does as you look through the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God calls people into the work of ministry, saying to Saul and Barnabas, set them apart for missionary work. In Acts 16, 6, you read that the Spirit also blocks people from ministering, saying to Paul's group, the Spirit of Jesus prevents them from going into Bithynia. And then also afterwards, in Acts 19.21, the Spirit actually directs them, giving them an open door of where to go in Macedonia afterwards and ultimately to Jerusalem. You read in Acts 21.11 that the Spirit of God actually knows the future and reveals it to Paul that he's actually going to become a prisoner in Jerusalem if he proceeds to go down that road. Paul knows he has to go because the Spirit of God is constraining him to go. You see what's significant about the Spirit speaking? The significance is that when you look at how the Spirit acts and it works, whether it's closing doors for the gospel or opening opportunities or telling people that they're going to suffer or that people will actually abandon Christ in these last days, the Spirit speaking shows us that none of these things take God by surprise and that the God of all the universe is fully aware and He is sovereign over all these things. People do not fall away apart from God's notice. You know, Spirit-inspired prophecy is meant to give us peace that God is in control over the situation. I put this in your outline. Number one, God knows, God knows that some professing Christians will abandon Jesus Christ. Now, we know this is true because of the parables and it's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. But the question for us is, why and how do people fall away? And now there's many reasons for why this actually occurs, but the one that Paul wants to focus on here is this. The reason that he's going to address and deal with, one of the primary reasons that people fall away is because of deceitful demonic education. See, it's invisible to the eye, but around us there is actually an enrollment war going on. And it's an enrollment war not for spots in UBC or SFU or institutions of higher learning, 
but an enrollment war that is fought by deceitful spirits who are trying to seize the minds of people and saying, enroll in my classes right now. Let me teach you a new philosophy or a way how to live. Learn from me and you will be happy. And all at the same time, there's another education program going on as the Holy Spirit of God is moving through His Word around the globe, speaking to people and saying, don't take that education Be educated instead in the school of Christ and truly be free and learn how to live. See, people don't fall away from Christ simply because a switch is flipped off in their heads. One day that they're a Christian and the next day all of a sudden, no, I no longer believe. There's actually reasons for this. The reason that people fall away from Jesus Christ is because they come to hold valid, though not sound, arguments in their heads. Now, this is important for us to understand. So at this point, I need to give a little lesson on logic. If you've taken Philosophy 101, you might already know this, but it's very important to understand. I like to explain what the difference is between a valid argument and a sound argument. A valid argument is an argument in which the conclusion naturally and logically follows from the premises or the things that we believe or hold to be true. So, for example, let me, give you, let me give you this. You know how light switches work. If I say premise number one, a light switch is either on or off. Premise number two, the light switch that you're looking at is not in the on position. Therefore, the light switch must be off. Very simple to understand. Light has to be either on or off. If you can clearly see that the light switch is on, then I can say with absolute 100% confidence that the light switch is off. If it's not on, it's got to be off. Now, that's a valid and it's a sound argument. The conclusion naturally follows from the premises. There's no if, ands, or buts, or alternative cases. And we know that all the premises are true from what you know about light bulbs and light switches. Now, if I were to give you an alternative argument, let's say this. Number one, either Vancouver or Richmond gets daylight. Premise number two, Vancouver is bright and sunny right now. Conclusion, Richmond must be in total darkness right now. Now, this is an example of a valid argument that is unsound. And it's unsound because... Premise number one is not true. The statement that either Vancouver or Richmond gets daylight is not true. And the reason you know that is because you live here. If I told that to somebody in Africa who lives in a village, they might look at that first premise and say, well, I don't know, it might be true or not. Where is Richmond and Vancouver anyways? For those of us who live here, we say we know exactly where Richmond and Vancouver are. We locals don't need to think very hard to know that if it is noon in Vancouver and sunny, it is definitely noon in Richmond. And Richmond is also experiencing daylight. So that is why the argument, though it's valid, is unsound because there is a false premise. Now, if I altered premise number one and I said... Either Vancouver, B.C. or Richmond in England gets daylight. Now the argument actually becomes sound. 
all the premises are true and the conclusion naturally follows from the premises. When it's daytime in Vancouver, you know, if you've traveled to the UK, that it's nighttime in England. Therefore, if Vancouver is bright and sunny, it is not possible for Richmond in the UK to be experiencing sunshine and daylight. It's nighttime over there. And so that becomes a logical, a valid, and a sound argument. Do you know why Satan's minions are called deceitful spirits? It's because they present people with valid but unsound arguments. They lead God's people away from the truth and everyone else in the world through a systematic education in unsound arguments, arguments that are valid, but they have false premises hidden in them that will actually kill your soul if you choose to build your life on them. You know what the, where the first advanced philosophy class was held? It wasn't held in Cambridge in 1209 when the university was established. It was actually held in the Garden of Eden. It was when Satan began talking to the woman, Eve. You know, before Satan talked to the woman, she actually thought like this. You think about it. premise number one, God is good to me and his word can be trusted. Premise number two, in her mind, she would say, God says if I eat of this fruit of the tree of the garden, this tree of knowledge and good and evil, I will die. Conclusion then from premise one and premise two, if I eat of the forbidden fruit, I will surely die. So I won't eat it and I will live. Sound argument with all true premises. And then the deceiver comes along and he attacks Eve, not with his fangs and not with a sword, but he assaults the very premises instead of her mind. He goes for the mind. Genesis 3 verse 1, he begins by deconstruction. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And after Eve falters, fumbling with God's words, not getting it exactly right, he injects into her doubt a truth claim. Verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is absolutely crazy. Do you, do you see what just happened in front of us in a few short verses? Let me, let me analyze this play by play, the way that Satan uh, has acted here, and the way that, you know, sports commentators, they, 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 they pause videos of football games, and they analyze them play by play. And for those of us who don't know the game, you're like, ah, that makes a lot of sense. How did you see all of that? It's the same thing I'd like to do for us here. There's a lot going on in this play that Satan has run against Eve. See, Satan begins by assaulting her premises. He offers to her a suggestion that God is withholding the fruit for selfish reasons. He doesn't want her to be like God. Suddenly, premise number one that Eve held to in her mind, God is good to me and his word can be trusted, is now in jeopardy and it's under attack. And when the doubt begins settling into her mind, the woman begins going down a new road of syllogistic reasoning as the premises that she has held to are replaced. Suddenly, she begins thinking this way, premise number one, the fruit does look very delicious and tasty. Number two, delicious and tasty things are always good. 
Conclusion. Therefore, eating of the fruit must be good. Wait a minute. If the fruit is good, then number one, I know that eating of the fruit is a good thing. Number two, God told me not to eat this fruit. There is only one possible logical conclusion from this, and that is God does not want me to have a good thing. And when she had reached this conclusion in her mind, and the logic had settled in, God does not want me to have a good thing. It replaced that fundamental premises, number one, that she had started off with. God is good to me and his word can be trusted. Gone. God is not good. He can't be trusted. Therefore, I have no choice but to trust myself and to eat. You see how Satan works. He worked to undermine what she held to, her beliefs, the premises that were formed in her mind initially by the word of God. And he settled instead into her false premises and led her with a valid but unsound argument to sin. See, the new premise, number one, eating the fruit is a good thing, was a lie. And because she bought the lie, trusting Satan and the evaluation of her own mind, she reached an erroneous conclusion that ultimately would led to catastrophic consequences, not, not only for her, but for the entire human race. And this is how Satan kills. He sends his minions out into the world who are masters of human psychology, who inspire human leaders who then rise to become false teachers. I put this in your outline, number two. False teachers use demonic doctrines to seduce people to abandon Christ. You know, in verse 2, we read about these false teachers that they are called insincere liars, who in this case are advocating a kind of asceticism, and they form it like marriage and say that people must stick to what is most likely the Jewish dietary law. Now, asceticism is not really popular in our culture, and we have a hard time relating to this because we are largely hedonistic instead. But in many places around the world, like India, for example, sadhus are considered holy men who live ascetic lifestyles, foregoing food and pleasures in life, living very strict lives instead. They don't marry. If they were to read this, they would understand intuitively what Paul is talking about. Of course, people who restrict their food and don't marry are holy people. I mean, we don't feel that naturally, but there are many people around the globe who think that. Now, these false teachers, understanding the culture of their day and the demons understanding it as well, were advocating something that was palatable, understandable to the people of that age. Oh, of course, of course, that sounds like a good thing. Of course, such people must be godly. These false teachers assert basically that true Christianity is about not marrying and also about eating a restricted diet. And the question you ask is, is that right? And to that, the Apostle Paul looks them in the eye and says, absolutely not, you are wrong. And he fights their unsound reasoning and argumentation with a sound argumentation that comes from true premises based on Scripture. And this is how he does it in verses 3 to 5 that we just read. One, God created all food. Two, everything God created is good. Conclusion then, all food is good. Number three, God created all food to be received with thanksgiving. And number four, Thankful prayer for food makes it holy or honoring in the sight of God. All food is holy 
and should be received with thanksgiving. That's his argument. Now, the question is, is this argument sound? And then we have to look at the premises and say, are the premises true? Yes, they are. Because the Apostle Paul in this text is quoting Genesis and other parts of the Bible. And if the Bible is truly God's Word and it is perfect, as God says, then it gives us true premises for argumentation. How does Paul counter the valid but unsound arguments of the false teachers? He counters it by creating sound arguments with biblical truths at his premises. And wrong premises do not come from the school of God, but they are lies from the school of Satan. This is why Paul, how he reasons and he argues, right? Everything created by God is good, verse 4. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's biblical argumentation, all from the scriptures. And so he argues. You know, there's so many false teachers in this world. You know, like what verse 2 says about these false teachers, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, That's strong language that's being used here to describe false teachers. There are many of these false teachers who take the Word of God, twist it, and use it to promote their own well-being and to pad their own pockets with money. They're fraudsters, and they abuse the name of God. You know, a prime example of this is a man named Benny Hinn who runs fake healing crusades, using the name of God to draw people, tens of thousands in an audience. You know, CBC's Fifth Estate actually did an expose of Benny Hinn's ministry, and they discovered actually that people with real illnesses who were on crutches, with cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, major heart conditions, or who were very visibly crippled, were not allowed to approach the stage, but all of the handlers there would usher them aside, and they would only let a certain subset of people who didn't have visible illnesses or severe ones to go up front. And so they kept people who clearly could not be healed away from the main stage. You know, when I read about the stories of mothers and fathers who would actually bring children who were dying and had days left to live, and they brought them to the wings, and the staff took one look at them knowing that they are not good candidates for this fake healing, they would shoo them away. And my heart was just absolutely crushed to think about that. I look at that and I go, how dare you? How dare you take the name of God and take the hope of these mothers and fathers with their dying children coming to see you a fraud and a charlatan. You keep them away from the main stage knowing you can do nothing from them, but you will take their money. This makes me mad. And I wonder in my, in my heart, like, how can people do this kind of thing? Don't you fear God to dare use His name in fraud to fleece people who have barely any hope left in life and you take their money taking advantage of those who are defenseless and helpless against a God who says that He is a God of the fatherless and a God of the widow. And if you will not give them justice, He will repay and He will take care of them. You know, to speak falsely and to dare to use the name of God to enrich your own pockets, how can anyone do this? And the answer is this, desensitization of the conscience and the soul, a seared conscience, as Paul says, You know what searing is? Searing is what you do to a piece of steak on the barbecue. You sear it so it has this nice brown, blackish, golden crust on the end of it that's 
hard. You bite into it and, and it protects the inner meat from the crunchiness and stuff from the outside. It's delicious on the barbecue, but if that's over your soul, it will kill you. Seared flesh and a seared conscience no longer knows right from wrong. And you get there through one burning at a time, allowing yourself to be exposed to the flames, saying, this is okay. Yeah, I hurt initially, but this is okay. It's okay. And wow, I don't even feel the fire anymore. And so your conscience is seared. You don't feel your sin anymore because you simply can't. It always gets easier over time. You want a list of other false teachers, just go on and listen to Shai Lin's hip-hop song called False Teachers. Great song. He names all kinds of others in there in this prosperity camp. Joel Osteen, for example, is another example of a false teacher who preaches a prosperity gospel that Jesus died to make you healthy, wealthy. And if you're not experiencing that, you're not living the abundant life. You don't have enough faith. Something is missing in your life. And I read stuff like that and I say, Mr. Osteen, you don't read your Bible. What do you make of Philippians 1.29 that says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That verse tells me that suffering for the sake of Christ is as much a gift, it's been granted to you, as belief in Jesus is. How do you reconcile the two in your prosperity theology camp? Well, what about Hebrews 10.34? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. According to the prosperity gospel, if I lose my house because of persecution, I should be absolutely sad and devastated. But you look at this verse, and Hebrews 10 says to that, that's absolute nonsense and rubbish. Joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. In other words, when people show up and say, because you're a Christian, you don't belong here in this village anymore. Get out of this place. Get rid of your house, or we will kill you. And you leave, and they take your property. If your heart is grounded in truthful premises from the Scriptures, in biblical premises, this is how you will reason. Number one. I am losing my earthly possessions. Number two, life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Number three, I have a better and abiding possession in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Logical conclusion that I will reach. The loss of my property does not take from me that which is most valuable. My life is not defined by my earthly possessions. Therefore, I can joyfully accept the plundering of my house and it being taken away. Do you see how biblical argumentation works? It works against the falsehoods of this world that tell you you're nothing if you lose your job. You're nothing if you lose your house. You are in terrible shape if you lose your health. All of that, the Bible says, false, not true. Your hope is not there. It's with Christ. Amen. Philippians 1.21, famous verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm dead, I go to be with Jesus Christ. You know, this is very different. Who can stop you if you actually think like that? Your boss, imagine if you had a boss that was ready to fire you at work, but you had a rich friend who said, hey, don't worry, if your boss fires you, I will give you enough money for the rest of your life so that you can vacation and enjoy it 
forever. You'll never have to work again in your life. The minute that your boss calls you into the boardroom and fires you and says, I'm letting you go, and I hope you never work in this industry again, you can smile and say, don't worry, there's a place in the Bahamas for me. If you actually believe that, you really believe that your life doesn't consist in your job, the abundance of your possessions, you can go through anything. And let me tell you that heaven is way better than the Bahamas, and it lasts forever. See, this is why we have to know God's word to deal with these false things that Satan wants to put in our minds. I put this in your outline, number three. Demonic miseducation must be countered with biblical education. And you know, demonic education isn't just restricted to false teachers in the church. It's actually broader than that. We've talked a lot about the church, but it's broader than that. In Ephesians 6, Paul explains how it works very generally speaking in our world when he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, but against the powers and the principalities or against the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, what Paul is saying is that behind the powerful governments, the banking systems, the major religions of the world with millions of adherents and all the philosophies of life that are taught in the vaunted intellectual institutions of our world, our universities, Paul says, he sees behind these things actually demonic inspiration. And he affirms this again later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says that what people sacrifice to idols in their religions, they're actually sacrificing to demons. Now, I know it's very popular in Vancouver and in Canada and our culture to say stuff like all religions are actually superficially uh, different, but real, really, fundamentally, they're all the same. You know, if you really look at them, they all teach the same thing. And when people tell me that here in Vancouver... I always tell them, do you know the opposite is actually true? Religions, if you look at them, are superficially the same, but they are actually fundamentally different. Look at the big four in the world. Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. They account for over 77% of the world's 7.7 billion people practice one of these four religions. You look at Islam, for example, that believes in the concept of tawhid, which is the idea that there is only one God. And daring to worship or an idol, an idol or any other god is a major sin in Islam and can be called shirk, which is unforgivable. How do you stack that up against Hinduism that says there's like a million gods? You know, the two are fundamentally incompatible if you look at their doctrines that they teach. Buddhism argues, for example, there is a cycle of death and rebirth and what you want to try to do is to escape from this cycle. Christianity says, what cycle? Doesn't the Bible say it's appointed for man to be born once and to die once, and then after that comes judgment? How on earth, if you look at the doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity, can you look at that and say, oh, I think that both of them are, are pretty much the same religion? Absolutely different, fundamentally. You know, Jesus himself claimed to be the only way, the truth and the life. It's a claim of exclusivity. Nobody gets to God except through me. Therefore, if you think about it logically, like a light switch, Jesus is saying the light is either on or off. It's either me or something else. And something else is not going to get you anywhere. Therefore, the teachings of Jesus alone set him and Christianity at odds with every other philosophical and religious system in the world. And whether this is atheism, hedonism, one of the big three other religions, materialism, North American individualism, all of these are actually 
in opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ, the exclusive claims of Christ, and they are nothing more, according to the Bible then, than the products of demonic think tanks, intellectual traps created to seduce the human mind away from the path that leads to life. And these demonic deceptions are dispersed everywhere in our world, from our universities to the film industry to Wall Street. You know what the problem with deception is? Is that when you're deceived, you can't see it. You know, a friend of mine told me once he had to confront a ministry co-worker about how deceived he was in his pride about his own sense of self-worth. And when he confronted his friend about this, his friend said to him, don't worry, if I was deceived, I would know it. And he wanted to just smack his own forehead and say, do you listening to yourself talk? That's the definition of deception. You won't know it if you're deceived. How deceived do you have to be to think that you would know you're deceived if you were actually deceived? That's ridiculous. You know, there's so many kinds of deceptions in our world that affect us today. I think of the ladies who struggle brutally with anorexia because of the pressures our society places on them. They've been demonically deceived into believing that their value of their life lies in how thin their legs and their arms are. And, and I want to say to individuals who are suffering with these things, just come to Jesus. Don't live and be tortured in this way by the demons of this world who would do this to you. Come to Jesus and listen to his words instead. The world tells you that there is an unattainable image in your head of perfection, and you need to be this image in order to be happy. Do you know what the gospel says to you? You're made in the image of God. You don't need to live after the image of your head. I want you to be free and know that you're already valuable if you turn to Jesus because you're made in his image. You know, there are many men who have sacrificed their families on the altar of Wall Street because they've been deceived to believe that life does consist in the money that they make and the possessions that they have. To this, the Bible says, don't store up treasure on this earth where your moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It won't last but store up treasure for yourself in heaven. And so you say, why are you accumulating something for yourself that will only rot at the end of the day? Do you really value that? Now, these ones we can spot in society, but what about other things that are harder to spot? How do we know that a culture that we live in has got it right? Most of us Canadians generally think, speak, we think that we're decent people and that our culture is pretty good. And yet, you just look back at the way that Canadians or Americans or even people around us lived a couple years ago. We look at their cultures and we say, how could they ever have lived like that? Barely 150 years ago, 200 years ago, people used to keep slaves. And we go, how could they have done that to other human beings? What despicable people are that? We look back 60 years ago in Canada and the United States, and we could say, how could people have been so racist towards Chinese people and black people? I love Chinese food. Terrible. We look at Nazi Germany and we say, how could anybody have supported the Nazis? But the truth is, the values of our culture will one day be judged by our children who will look at us and they will say, I can't believe that mom and dad used to think that. That was horrific. For example, you know that the famous magazine, The Economist, declared that 2019 is the year of the vegan? Actually, in the USA, from 2014 to 2017, the number of vegan consumers has gone from 1% to 6%, a six-fold increase in barely a few years. I suspect, you know, perhaps that in 50 years, one day, people will look back on our culture in horror and say, if this trend continues, 
How on earth could those people have lived, slaughtering animals and cramming them in inhumane conditions just for food? No wonder our ancestors had so many wars and atrocities. If they were that brutal towards animals, no wonder they were beastly towards each other and killed each other on the battlefield. We're better evolved now. We eat only plant-based things. It may just be that one day, eating bacon will be the equivalent of making a racist comment or being a cruel person. Right now, we look at that and think that's funny. But let's see in 30 years where our world goes. We will be judged by the next generation who will look back at us and say, I can't believe they thought that way. What about relative morality that's so popular in our culture today? What's true for you may not be true for me, is what I often hear. I remember listening to the story of a woman who once sat in a philosophy class with a professor who was teaching that there's no such thing as absolute morals and there's only relativism. And partway through the semester, that professor's daughter was tragically raped. That professor in the next class actually went on to a rant about how despicable that was, how wrong it was, and how angry he was with the world. This young college girl, listening to him talk, courageously put up her hand and asked the professor, expressing her sympathy for the tragedy that had taken place and asked him, sir, how can you reconcile your current statements about the evilness of this with what you just taught in the last class on moral relativism? The professor stared at her and glared at her for a long time. And then he told the whole class, destroy the notes from my last class. I no longer believe what I last taught. So he takes experiences like that. What do you actually believe? What is morality? Are there absolutes or is everything relative? Or if there are, who gets to define them? Our culture believes ourselves to be progressive, great, whereas Middle Eastern societies will look on our sexual promiscuity, our permissivity in abortions and our divorce laws with horror. What we call progress, they call destruction, animalistic, selfish, and murderous. And the question is, who is right? Which culture gets to sit in judgment over the other culture? At the end of the day, who gets to define what is right? Us, Middle Easterners, or people of the 18th century? What about God? What about God if he has a timeless standard for human beings? Do you think that we will live up to his standards if he looks at all the cultures of the world and judges them? You know, friends, to wrap this up, this is what I want to say. We need solid premises to build our lives on. Because if you don't have an absolute foundation for what you believe, how do you know that the way that you're living is actually truly good? And the Bible tells us that one day we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and that every day every person will be found guilty and condemned to hell for their own sins without a Savior, Jesus Christ. But this is why we love the gospel so much, because the gospel tells us that when we couldn't pay for our own sins, Jesus paid it all for us on the cross. We couldn't live the perfect life, not according to our own standards, not according to our culture standards, and not according to the cultural standards imposed on us by other cultures that judge our culture. We cannot live according to any of these standards truly and meet them, but Jesus lived according to the higher standard, God's standard, paid it all for the cross, and offers us his perfect life if only we will entrust ourselves to him. You know, the truth is, if you build your life on any of the systems, philosophical or religious in this world, they are nothing more than systems that are built on false premises, demonic deceptions that are aimed to destroy you. You know, I know many people 
you know, we'll think in our culture, and maybe you're sitting here and you say, well, Sam, why should I believe you or believe that the Bible is true? Give me your best argument. Can you prove to me that God exists and prove to me that this Christianity thing is true? Now, I think I can actually offer to you, if you're willing to sit down with me, very good reasons for why Christianity is true. But I think um, that there's something better than this. I like what Tim Keller actually said. He said that when God decided to send salvation, he didn't send an airtight argument. He sent an airtight person. In other words, he didn't send an abstract principle. He sent a human being. In other words, the truth of Christianity isn't just to be grasped by those who are intellectually elite and can read books and reason and have the opportunity to go to university and discourse in societies that have free speech. The truth of Christianity can be read by even the most unlettered and uneducated people. Any person can read a human being. And as you read the person of Jesus Christ and you contemplate his perfect life and God's perfect word, God's perfect expression to us, Jesus Christ, we will see truth. I love what Philip Schaff, the church historian, said about Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, Jesus spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since produced effects which lie beyond the reach of an orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion, furnished more themes for sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, songs of praise, than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. That's Jesus Christ, the one that we worship. In Jesus Christ, we see a perfect individual whom no one can find fault with. We see one who did not repay his enemies according to their sins, but set for us a model of perfection, the true life that God wants for every single human being to live, but can never meet because of our sin. The true God who loved his enemies to the point of life, death, and gave his life for them. In Jesus, we see man as he is fully supposed to be. You know, if you're a Christian here, what I want to encourage you today is that if you have found yourself trapped in demonic lies, living not as God intended for you, I want you to repent of that and turn back to Jesus. Build your life on the premises of God's word and not the false systems of this world that are attempting to seduce you and say, your life is truly good if only you have this. You know, if you don't know Jesus today here, what I want to say to you is I want you to invite you to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Look at the perfect argument of God, not on a page, but in the person of Christ. And as you read about his life and you come to know the person of Jesus Christ, you will say, I've never seen such beauty. I've never seen such perfection. And if Jesus could trust the scriptures and he says it is his words, then I can trust the Bible too. Brothers and sisters, what I want us to know here is that when we see people fall away, there is no need to panic. God knows that people will fall away. But let us be wise and guard our hearts and minds with biblical truth from the demonic deceptions and systematic teachings of the demons in this world so that we will be able to spot the lies of demonic miseducation and educate people with the truth of God's word and lead them to life that is everlasting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us such clarity from your word. 
We can walk through the uncertainties of this world knowing that you, God, have placed solid stepping stones that we can build our lives on. Father, I pray, would you show us how to be continually educated in the school of the Savior and not the school of Satan? Show us our hidden faults and model to us what it is like to be more like Christ and full of joy in Him. And I trust, Father, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.